This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to a very happy and relieved Rico Bronia as the New York Mets have completed a sweep. How sweep it is of the Philadelphia Phillies at City Field. They basically reversed everything. All the bad, all the negative, all the worry, at least for a few days, they reversed it with this three-game sweep against the Philadelphia Phillies. And it feels so, 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 so good. Because the last time we talked, after the series defeat at the hands of the Colorado Rockies, there were real concerns, and they still exist to a degree, there were real concerns about the pitching rotation, about this bullpen, about who you can trust. I mean, listen, they were fresh off giving up 21 runs in two games to the Colorado Rockies. 21 runs. So you come home against the Philly team that has not clicked offensively. If we're being fair about this, they didn't have Bryce Harper for a long period of time. Trey Turner has had a dreadful season. Kyle Schwarber, for the most part, I know he's at 13 home runs, is having a dreadful season. JT Riamuto is having a mediocre season. So, yeah, coming into the year, I picked them to win the division. I think Sal picked them to win the division. I think I think we all picked the Phillies to win the NLEs. We figured they were going to pick up where they left off from last year, and offensively, they have not. So I know the context of who this team is coming into this series, but they have Bryce back. It's a big series against the Mets, and after the Mets dominated them a year ago, I was very worried going into this three-game series. And the last thing I thought would happen would be that this rotation would come out, and this bullpen, which we'll get to, would come out and dominate the way it did. So let's enjoy the sweep. We'll talk about the other underlying issues, the lineup, Daniel Vogelback, roster moves, and all that. But let's start with the opener of this three-game series because Kodai Senga, and as you know listening, I've been a little bit of a Senga defender. I have been very patient with Kodai Senga. And a part of my patience is that he gives you signs that he can be really, really good. Had he put it all together so far over his first nine starts? No. Wildly inconsistent, lack of command, inability from the Mets, not him, to pitch every five days. He always needs to be pushed back. And really weird splits home and road, which we knew going in. But Kodai Senga comes out 
And I'm pissed I wasn't at this game. I had to make a decision of which of the three games, which of the two games I'd go to. I couldn't go Thursday, obviously, doing the afternoon show. Tuesday, Wednesday, I can only pick one. I'm taking my family to two games over the weekend. I had to pick one. And I picked the Wednesday game because of the Howie Rose bobblehead. But Tuesday night, Kodai Senga is on the mound. And Kodai Senga, and you could tell very early on, he was as dominant as we've ever seen. We've seen glimpses of dominance from Kodai. We've seen his ability to kind of ball up in a big spot, nut up in a big spot. I don't know if that's used correctly. Show some guts in a big spot. Whatever. It's a podcast. I apologize. Don't look up those terms. He didn't have to on Tuesday night. That was what was so scintillating about him. One, two, three, first. One, two, three, second. Three strikeouts in the first two innings. His ghost fork ball is unhittable. He's getting guys swinging at two twos in the dirt, three twos in the dirt, and then not even making good contact. Like Now, he is working some deep counts, and it is what it is. There's going to be three two counts. The pitch count's getting up a little bit early on. But he is looking so dominant. He retires the first seven guys. He gives up a real cheap blue pit to Cody Clemens, Rogers' son, and then promptly, without missing a beat, gets Dalton Guthrie out, gets Bryson Stott out, and he is in full command. The only time, and this really is remarkable, the only time Kodai Senga gave up a baseball that was hit all that hard was the Castellanos ball in the fourth that, let's face it, was a home run. And Brandon Nemo made that incredible leaping catch, reminding you of what he did against the Dodgers last year in late August with Jake on the mound. That was an outstanding catch by Brandon Nemo, and that was really the one blemish. Now, more on Nemo in a second, because I want to talk about his defense. It's it's amazing. But other than that, Senga gets the next guy out, one, two, three, fifth, one, two, three, sixth. He gets another really good catch by Nemo in the seventh, one, two, three, seventh. And I'm looking down at my scorecard, and I couldn't believe what I'm looking at. I'm like, holy crap, this guy This guy has retired every batter he's faced. He has struck out nine guys. Every batter he's faced but one, the bloop single. He has struck out nine guys. And while, sure, there were a bunch of full counts, not denying that, he didn't walk one guy. This was a guy who came into the game with 31 walks in 48 innings, and he did not walk one person. His pitch count at that point after seven was at a number in which you knew he's coming out of the game, and even 100. And while, yeah, there may be a time where you want to push someone when they're at 100, we certainly don't live into that world anymore. Maybe in the postseason would you see something like that. Guy gets to 100, he's coming out of the game, especially when he's Kodai Senga, and especially when you're wondering about his availability for his next start. Because unless the Mets make a move, And as of this recording, I have not heard about them making a move. Kodai Senga would be in line to make his first start on regular rest on Sunday. So if you're Buck Showalter and the Mets, and there's ever a day in which you want to keep his pitch count maybe lower than normal, it would be now unless they don't have any plans of him pitching on Sunday. So, look, there's no question he's coming out of the game after 100 pitches, but I was even wondering as this game was going on, would he take him out earlier for the reasons I'm giving? If... Senga is going to break that snide, and it's not his issue. It's a med issue, but if he's going to break that streak of not pitching on four days rest, maybe you'd want to do it coming off of a start in which he throws, let's say, 87 pitches. Now, I I hope this is not an issue. 
I hope Senga pitches on Sunday because he's going to have to do it eventually. And I said this before, why not do it now? Like, what are we waiting for? But on Tuesday night, he was utterly brilliant. The Met offense, on the other hand, did he basically did nothing. Francisco Lindor hits the home run in the fourth inning off Ranger Suarez, and they did have a few opportunities in this game. Nothing crazy. Starling Marte had a two-out single and a stolen base, and McNeil couldn't drive him in. They had a one-out rally in the third. They had a rally after the Lindor home run. They got the leadoff men on the fifth inning, and Escobar quickly grounded into a double play. They were doing nothing against Ranger Suarez. They did put something together in the seventh when Marte gets that little blue pit on an 0-2 pitch. And then McNeil is bunting. He's not bunting the sack. He's bunting for a hit. It turns into a sacrifice. And after Tommy Pham walks, Eduardo Escobar gets that RBI single in the seventh inning against Connor Brogdon. And I thought that was a really interesting point in this game, and I'll tell you why. It's one nothing Mets. It's the bottom of the seventh. You kind of know Sanga's out like we discussed. He's out 100 pitches, seven scoreless innings. Brilliant outing. And Rob Thompson takes Suarez out, takes the lefty out. Escobar was playing because of his numbers against Ranger Suarez, part of why he was playing. And he goes to a righty. And we know Escobar is better as a left-hand hitter. If you're Buck, you got an easy way to retort this if you want. You've got Brett Beatty on the bench. You've got Daniel Vogel back on the bench. Neither guy had been used at this point. And I was very curious, what does Buck do? To me, his only option is Beatty. And the reason his only option is Beatty has nothing to do with Daniel Vogelback sucking, which I'm sure many people on this podcast listening right now want me to get into. And we will. We will talk about Daniel Vogelback at some point. But he ain't the lead story, not when you sweep the Phillies and not on Tuesday night when they win the opener. The reason your only option is Beatty is because Beatty would then come into the game to play third base. If you use Vogelback, you're going to have to use Beatty anyway to come in and play third base. So... Your option is Escobar or Beatty. That's it. And I didn't hate him sticking with Escobar. I didn't hate it. And I'm not saying that because it worked out and he came through with the RBI single that gave the Mets the second run. I'm saying it because Escobar is hitting. And the one thing I want to make very, very clear, this is my opinion on the subject, when it comes to veterans and young players, the Mets are not rebuilding. Okay, this is not a team that's going to lose 95 games where, hey, I don't need to see that veteran. Just show me the young guys. I want to win. So when I scream and yell about who should DH, whether it's Vientos, Vogelbach, or anybody else, it's not because I have this infatuation with seeing young players. It's because I want to win. And I think most of us agree that Vogelbach doesn't give them the best chance to win. But our infatuation with the young guy is not because they're young. It's because we think it gives the Mets a better chance to win. Obviously, Brett Beatty's the future. And on most nights, I want Brett Beatty starting and playing third base. On most nights. Can there be a night? Like we saw Tuesday where you sit him, I'm okay with it. Escobar's got good numbers against the guy, fine. And Escobar's good. Like, we got to remind ourselves this. Eduardo Escobar, for the last month, has been good. He got off to an abysmal start. He lost the third base job, rightfully so. Beatty's come up. And when Bucks used him, mostly as a right-hand hitter, he's been effective. He was one for two at that point. Did ground into that double play, but did have a one-out single in the third. The average is up to 240. He's hit four home runs. Like, he's been a productive player over the last couple of weeks. So I was intrigued. Like, uh, let me see him get a left-handed at-bat. I'm up one nothing in the game. Maybe later I use Beatty. Maybe there's another situation where I use Beatty. Maybe I'm pinch-hitting for Tommy Pham later in this game. I don't know. Because think about it. Once I use Beatty there, 
I'm married to Tommy Pham getting an at-bat or Mark Hanna. One of the two guys. And obviously this is before Mark Hanna had you know, his monster few days against the Phillies, which we'll get to. So I was okay with Escobar hitting, and he absolutely rewarded Buck with that ground ball up the middle. Then Brandon Nimmo was about to wrap the game up with a roper up the alley, and Castellanos made a, a tremendous, tremendous sliding catch to keep the game at 2-0. But then it was bullpen time. And like I said when we did our last Rico, who do you trust in this bullpen outside of David Robertson? Well, you have to trust Adam Adovino. He's been up and down. But if you're making that trust meter, that little trust tree, Adovino is going to be towards the top. And that's not because he's great. It's because what are your options? He walks JT Riamuto on four pitches. And let's all admit, we're panicking. We're panicking. The Mets are up 2-0. Adam Adovino, fresh into this game after Senga's brilliant. Seven innings, one hit, no runs, nine strikeouts, no walks, 100 pitches. And he walks the leadoff guy on four pitches. And then thank you, Lord. Thank you, baseball gods. Thank you, JT Riamuto. Thank you, Adam Adovino. And thank you, Francisco Alvarez. Because for some reason that I cannot figure out, JT Riamuto tries to seal second base. <laughs> That's a Met move from earlier this season. Remember Brandon Nimmo? Remember that crap? To the credit of Alvarez and to the credit of Adovino, who's usually terrible at holding guys on, Adovino got the ball to the play quick. Alvarez makes a great throw into the runner. McNeil applies the tag. And JT Realmuto hands the Mets an out in the eighth inning. And Adovino, to his credit, gets the next two guys out. David Robertson gives up the one-out single, gets Bryson Stott to ground into a double play, and Robertson continues to be near perfect as the Met closer, filling in for Edwin Diaz, and the New York Mets win a nice, neat, and tidy 2-0, two-hour and 20-minute masterpiece at Citi Field. You have to be encouraged by Senga. You have to be encouraged by the bullpen getting six outs, your two most trustworthy relievers. You have to be encouraged by Lindor. And I've said this a million times about Lindor. He's clutch. That's the one thing I'll say about him, man. He he is clutch, and he plays every day. And there are plenty of other numbers you can look at, like the batting average, and say, ah, it's not that good. Because it's not. I'm not going to lie. Or, ah, the OPS, not that good. It's not. I'm not going to sit here and argue that. How could you argue with it? It's not good. But after he hits that home run in game one, 10 home runs, 40 RBIs, and the swing that changed that game. So credit to Lindor. And he's done that a lot. He's done that a lot as a Met. Sometimes I will give you stats, and I'll give you numbers, and I'll look it up. And sometimes there's a feeling. Sometimes there's a, hey, I watch every single game. Here's how I feel about a guy. Watching every single game, here's my feeling on Lindor. He plays every day, and he's clutch. Where do I rank him among shortstops? I don't care. Where do I rank him amongst MLB players? I don't care. I really don't. I think that's the beauty of when you're a fan of a team. Like, It's not about any of that stuff. It's about, does that guy help my team win? And he certainly did in game one of this series. So great victory. I watched this game way far behind, too, on DVR. Way far behind. I forget the reason. I must have hit traffic or something. Or I gave my wife, we had a long conversation about life. And I must have started this game like at 9 o'clock at night. So I I gave you no live tweets if anybody cares about that. The one thing I did see from this game, and I appreciate a friend of mine that was in the building, 
is that they played the guess the Met game. They call it Resumet, where they give you the resume of a Met player, three hints, and then you've got to guess who the player is. So after the game is over, I check my text messages. This must have been 11 o'clock at night, 10, 30, 11, whenever I got the game done, whenever I got it done. And I'm reading the messages mostly about the Mets, some about life. And I see blind resume. And it's the scoreboard. I'm like, what the hell is this? So I read hint number one. I played for both the Mets and the Phillies. A lot of options with that. Clue number two. My 22 home runs in 1995 were the most among all Mets. As soon as I saw that hint, come on. I, of course, I knew who it was. It was Rico. It's my man. But then I read clue number three. And you should all be very proud of yourselves for downloading this podcast. Clue three. A well-known radio host has a podcast named after me. <laughs> First of all, I don't know about well-known. We going with that? Okay. But the Rico made the Rico. So congratulations to every single person listening. I wish I was at that game. Though, you know what's funny? If I was at the game, there's a decent chance I never see it. There's a decent chance. Because when I'm at the game, and look, I guess it depends who I'm with. If I'm with my dad, if I'm with a buddy of mine, I talk. You know, I'm talking to him. Or maybe I'm not talking. Maybe I'm checking my phone. Maybe I'm texting my wife because I'm feeling guilt that I'm at a Met game while my two kids are sleeping and my wife's home alone. So there's a really good chance I never would have seen it. So even if I was at the game, I don't know. I don't know if I would have been able to enjoy it. But I want to thank my friend Dennis, who took the picture and sent it to me. Thank you. Great victory. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Game two of this series on Wednesday night was a real adventure. On a personal level, I missed my train. The way I go to all these Met games is I drive to City Field before the afternoon show. I take the train from City Field to work. I work, and then when the show is over, I take the train to City. And the reason I do that is because I want to make first pitch. And the only way I'd be able to make first pitch is by taking the train. There's a Long Island Railroad train that leaves Penn Station at 638, and it pulls in at 6.58. From 6.58 to walking into the building, I will usually walk in right at 7.08. So I will walk in as the announcer is saying, the Mets take the field. And it's been that way every single weeknight game I go to, to a T. So I got it down perfectly, walk right in as the game is starting, never miss a first pitch. It's fantastic. Haven't had an issue. For Wednesday, show ends. I get on the one train. It never comes. It takes five minutes. I'm like, oh, get a little worried. May not make this LA double R train. It comes, and then it doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> and I'm sitting in the subway, and I'm looking at my phone thinking, I ain't making this train. Am I making it? And it goes one stop, stops again. Five more minutes. Now I know I'm not making the train because it's 640, and the train's at 639. So in my head, I'm thinking, okay, so what are my options here? I'll just take the 7 train. I got to take the 7. I mean, it's easy. Instead of going to 34th Street, you go one extra stop to 42nd, get on the 7 train. I have not taken the – I've taken the 7 a lot. I haven't taken the 7 Express a lot. 
I just haven't. Like, when I've taken the 7 train, I take the 7 train. In fact, I used to take the 7 train a lot of days to work in my time before biking. When I would come to the city, I lived in Long Island City, Queens. I would take the 7 train all the time. Never took the express. Never. There wasn't an express to run. And it wouldn't have impacted me from where I was coming from. So I get on the 7 express. What an experience. Oh, my God. 22 minutes. 22 minutes from the city all the way to City Field. So I missed first pitch. Don't get me wrong. But I walked in as the bottom of the first inning was coming. And I, I, I took a deep breath, looked at my dad, and I said, ah, it could have been worse. So I missed the top of the first inning where Cookie got the two outs, gave up a hit to Bryce Harper, got Castellanos to strike out. But good job by the seven. I got to tell you, it's like a whole new world seeing that seven express. It's actually making me reconsider, is it better to take the seven express as opposed to that specific 638 R? Save me a few bucks, too. That freaking train's $12 or $9, whatever the hell it is. Subway is $275, $325. I don't even know anymore. I stick the credit card in. I, I don't even freaking know. But it's a lot cheaper. I, I do know that. Uh, so we sit down. Cookie was, I would define Cookie as okay in the first three innings. Gives up the two-out hit, gets through it. Gives up the two-out double in the second to Brandon Marsh, gets through it. Gives up the leadoff home run to Edmundo Sosa and then a base hit. So it looked like it could have been worse with 2-3-4 coming up. And to his credit, got through it. Struck out Bryce Harper with a runner on second. Got Castellanos to ground out. And, you know, for the most part, was just good. Looked like his fastball was popping. I checked baseball savant after his fastball was up a tick. So that was good to see. Brandon Nimmo's making more running catches. And let me say this about Nimmo. Because Brandon Nimmo offensively, uh, he really didn't do that much in this series. He went 0 for 8 in the first two games of this series. And then he did have a hit in the finale of this series. So he was 1 for, if I'm at this correct, 11 in this series. Didn't hit a lot. And I thought his at-bats on Wednesday were weak. A couple of easy pop-ups, a couple of strikeouts. His defense in center field is so good. And what I can't get over about it is how bad it used to be. I remember saying on the radio, and I I don't regret it because I, I believe it was true at the time. It's one of those things where I was reacting to what I saw. I did not think Brandon Nimmo was an average center fielder. I thought he was a below-average defensive center fielder, and I say that just by watching him. That's the way he played. And starting two years ago, 2021, again last year and again this year, he has blossomed before our eyes as an elite-level defensive center fielder, and I find that remarkable. I find that a testament to the hard work he's he's done, and I think it's so rewarding as a sports fan when you see someone get better before your eyes. It's like, it's like watching your child improve at something. Not that Brandon Nimmo is our child by any stretch, but like when you acquire a star, and that's not a knock on acquiring a star, and that star is brilliant, you appreciate it. But you didn't get to see how he became brilliant. Even a guy who just comes into the league and immediately is great. Like Pete Alonso, Aaron Judge. They immediately came into the league and had outstanding seasons. Now, we've seen Pete grow as a player, especially defensively. So I don't want to say that we haven't. We certainly have in his case. Uh, Judge, yeah, we've seen him grow a little bit, but they were always great. Brandon Nimmo looked like a fourth outfielder for the first few years of his career. And a part of it was he couldn't stay healthy. But the other part was he wasn't that good, especially defensively. Offensively, you could always see something. 
But to watch him routinely make these kinds of defensive plays, I'm going to tell you something right now. And I don't have a defensive metric to prove this. I'm just going to give you my thoughts as a longtime Met fan who's watched both of these guys play almost every game they ever played as a Met. And if you disagree with this, fine. Uh, I'm just telling you an emotional yet somewhat analytical thought to defense and center field. I think he's a better defensive center fielder than Beltron. I do. And I thought Beltron was great. I was never a Beltron hater. I thought Beltron was misunderstood. I thought he was clutch. I thought he was really good defensively. Joe and I used to fight about it, and one of his issues was Beltron plays too deep, which, by the way, Nimmo does too. <laughs> so so that, that one cancels each other out. And I'll never forget a catch Beltron made in Houston against the Astros. Extra innings, tie game, if memory serves correct, back to the home plate, and he climbed up the old Tal Hill in center, which no longer exists, and made this outstanding catch. So I don't take anything away from Beltron when I say it. I think Nimmo's better. I do. I think Brandon Nimmo is one of the best defensive center fielders we've seen with this franchise in a couple of decades. I think he's that good. And I can't believe I'm saying it because I didn't believe that two years ago. Last year, you started to really see it. This year, he makes the difficult catch routine. So I wanted to spend a few minutes putting him over. Because you all know Marcana hit a home run in this game and then drove in two more runs. We already know that. <laughs> we know that Cookie hit in the bathroom because he didn't want Buck to take him out at 82 pitches. I, I didn't have an issue with Buck taking him out, even though the bottom of the order was coming up. So I thought you had a chance to sneak out a seventh inning only because we are dealing with a veteran who's had physical issues. We're dealing with a guy who's getting used to the pitch clock. And that was one of the things Hoff and I talked about early on. Hey, is the pitch clock affecting him? I really don't have an issue after you get through a tricky sixth, because it was not an easy sixth, saying, you know what? I'm getting him out of the game. Even with a bullpen that you don't fully trust. But Buck obviously knew, hey, I'm going to use Otto. I'm going to use Robertson. I'm not afraid. I'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. So I got my full complement of relievers. I actually was totally good with that move. And he goes to Brooks Raley, who gets a couple of strikeouts, gets a couple, gives up a couple of hits. And then I thought one of the plays of the game occurred to end the seventh inning. Mets at this point are up 4-1. to one. Canna's hit the home run. Canna drove in the two runs an inning later. So it's 4-1 to one Mets. Top of the seventh inning, runner on first and second, two outs. So tying run at the plate, batters Trey Turner, Bryce is on deck. Trey Turner hits a ground ball to third. Very difficult play. Beatty is deep as he feels it. We know how fast Turner is. And I thought as that ball got into Beatty's glove, Turner's going to beat this. Now maybe he can go to second to get Stott. Not sure if he has enough time. But if he throws to first base, I think Turner's going to beat this. And now we're set up for bases loaded Bryce. He probably keeps railing in the game lefty-lefty, and we'll see what happens. Brett Beatty threw a freaking P to first base. A tremendous throw. Got Turner out by a half a step, and I thought that was just an, a low-key outstanding play by Brett Beatty. Outstanding. Now the rest of the bullpen... Adam Ottavino comes in after Rayleigh gets Harper out. Great. Robertson gets into a little bit of a trouble spot after he hits Cody Clemens on an 0-2 pitch. So they got the tying run up. And then Robertson went into Diaz mode, and he strikes out the next two guys. And the New York Mets win game number two against the Phillies. And they do it with the same formula. 
brilliant starting pitching, and a great effort by this bullpen. Specifically, the key guys, Otto and Robertson, which for now, we'll see if things change around the trade deadline. That's the formula. And that formula makes me nervous. I do admit. And that's not a knock on Robertson. He's been great. Adovino's had his bad moments. I just have a very difficult time believing that that formula is going to remain this good. Specifically Robertson. Because, again, Adovino hasn't been that good. It does worry me. And as I sit here today on June 1st, I feel the way I felt last year. They need to add a bullpen arm at the deadline. I feel the exact same way. And no, Billy Epler, it can't be Michael Givens. Sorry. Have you checked on him? He's got like a 12 ERA. I'll tell you, man, those trade acquisitions from last year, whoo, how bad is that? But great victory. The issue I think most of us had prior to the game was the lineup. Uh, we saw no Francisco Alvarez, which I didn't have an issue with. I'll explain in a second. And we did see Daniel Vogelback. Vogelback had a very non-offensive game. He walked twice, including walking right before the count of home run. And then he walked in the fourth, didn't score on that one, and he popped up in the sixth inning. And I think what's frustrating is that Vientos has gotten a little bit of a chance to play. He got a chance to play three games in a row. And did Vientos do much? No, not really. I mean, I'll admit that. He had two hits on the game on Saturday, had a nice little two for four, took an 0 for four on Sunday, and had a one for three. Didn't hit any home runs, no extra base hits, but certainly wasn't bad. Like, not bad at all. And I think that's what's frustrating, that you looked at what he did over those three games, and you say to yourself, he should still play. Like, yeah, he's not looking for walks like Vogelback, but continue to run him out there. I get that he's facing Suarez, a lefty, on on Tuesday, and now Aaron Nola is a righty on Wednesday, but I don't think we need to live in a world in which Vientos and Vogelback are treated like a straight, a straight platoon. We don't need to do that. And so going into this game, there was a lot of issues with the Alvarez stuff. I didn't have a problem with it because day game after night game is a thing. That's not just been made up. Like JT Riamuto didn't play. The other day. Like, catchers do not play every single day. It's just, it's that's not what happens. Now, you want to DH him? Okay, they could DH him. It means no Vientos. So, if you want to start incorporating Alvarez as a DH, I'd be up for it. I'm not in favor of it now, though, because I'd rather see Vientos play. Alvarez is going to play most of the time. He's going to play. My whole thing of playing two out of three games, that's gone now. Now he's going to play... I think more than that, especially when there aren't day games involved. They go to Atlanta next week, he's going to catch every game. I'm telling you right now, barring injury, though, you know why I could be wrong? I got to stop myself because I think Narvaez is coming back, and they may want to get him a game in. (laughs) So I I take that back. But the point is, I didn't have an issue when that lineup came out of him sitting. My issue is the Vogelback thing, which everyone has said at nauseum, but I I guess what bothers me the most is, is that Vientos gets three games to play. He gets, what was he, three for 12, three for 11, something like okay. Nothing amazing, nothing terrible. He didn't look overmatched. And then you immediately, after that little moment of playing him, you sit him down. And you do it again. You do it two days in a row. And that's not fair to him. And like I said earlier, this is not about, I just want to see kids. This is about, Who gives you the best chance? Daniel Vogelback 
and maybe it's the pressure, maybe it's the fans, maybe here's what's being said about him. The guy only walks, strikes out with pitches down the middle, and he has seen his batting average dip to 215. His OPS is 667. I have not flip-flopped on Daniel Vogelback. I used to defend him when he was worthy of defending. When Daniel Vogelback had an 800 OPS, I'll engage in an argument with Hoff or Sal. I'd be lying if I defended him now. What would I be defending him? He's hitting 215. And it's not fair to Vientos. It's not fair. And you can't give me the position crap. Daniel Vogelback doesn't have position. We're talking about DH. And I think what the Mets have to do right now is either they've got to get rid of him, and that pains me because I, I still think he can be a useful player. To DFA him feels he's going to go somewhere else and perform. I, I just know it. I don't know where it's going to be. Maybe it's not in the division. Maybe it's not even in the league. So I hate the idea of DFAing him. I'd also hope he has more value than this. The Mets traded a freaking reliever for him in Colin Holderman. Can we redo that trade? I think Holderman's hurt, though, right now. I got to double-check that. So you got to take the drug away because right now Buck is addicted to Vogelback. Like he just needs to smoke his Vogelbacks two out of every three games, and it's got to stop. It was a nice sign in the finale of this series when he sent up Vientos as a pinch hitter against a left-hander. That was nice to see. And Vientos got the job done. He got a sacrifice fly. But, yeah, seeing Vogel back in the lineup, it's tough, man. And then you get to the finale of this series, and he does it again. Alvarez, obviously, in the lineup. He goes, he drops back down a 9. I'll address that in a second. And then Vogelback starts at DH, goes 0 for 2, does nothing. Looked like he was really pissed off when he popped up. We're all pissed off, Ogie. We're all pissed off. And he does send Vientos up late, but a, a really great game. Max gets into trouble early, uh, hurt by the error by Francisco Alvarez when he's trying to throw out Trey Turner at third. The sack fly to make it 2 nothing, and then Scherzer is brilliant after that. The Mets get a run back in the third, the two-run bomb by Canna in the fourth, and they flip-flop this game, and Scherzer just goes to work. And he was he was great. He recovers from that tough first inning, ends up giving him seven, which they really needed with a short bullpen. He ended up throwing 101 pitches. I thought, can you push him? You would have an extra day. Mets have an off day on Monday. So in theory, he'd have an extra day. I thought about it, especially with a short bullpen and really wanted to get the sweep. But Buck says, screw it, I'm going to my pen. Jeff Brigham does a great job. Give him credit. Brooks Raley, for the most part, does a great job. Drew Smith gets the final out. And the Mets win the finale of this series behind Max Scherzer, who may be back. He just may be. But I did think it was a very nice sign that Buck Showalter said, you know what, Vogie, I gave you starts. You're 0 for 3 with two walks. I'm going to go to Vientos. And I hope that's a sign coming up for this weekend. They're going to face two righties on Friday and Saturday, Bassett on Friday, Barrios on Saturday, and then Kikuchi on Sunday. So you know Vientos is playing against Kikuchi, at least you think so, the lefty on the mound. But he should play all three games. And that's obvious. But the real headline from this finale of this three-game series as the Mets completed the sweep was the utter brilliance of Max Scherzer. Now, I know a few people. I don't know if I'm one of them. 
But I know a few people that dunned Max Scherzer. They said he's washed up, he's done, he stinks, he always has an excuse. After his four brilliant starts in a row, he has lowered his ERA to a very respectable 3.21. He has a record of 5-2. and two. The New York Mets have won. I think it's, how many starts has Max made now? I think he's made eight or nine starts. They have only lost twice when Max Scherzer's taken the mound. And joining us right now, a guy that said he was done. My friend, Tommy Lugauer. Would you like to apologize to Max? I would not. Uh, listen, Evan, in life, in podcasting, in radio, sometimes you have to admit when you were wrong. And for now, I was wrong. I said he was cooked. I said he sucked. I said he was finished. I thought the whole sweat and rosin thing was Max admitting like, hey, I'm done. I don't have it anymore. The velocity was down. Bottom line is this, though. As I compliment him here, sort of, the Max Scherzer, his biggest starts as a Met have all been bad. Yes. All of them. Yes. Every single one of them. He has not answered the bell. So until he does that, he's on my S list. Has he turned it around? Yes. Was I wrong in the short term? Yes. It is a long season, Evan. He's not getting any younger. He's not Benjamin Button. So when we get to those dog days of August, those dog days of September, and where the Mets, and I think you and I both agree, they'll be in the mix because the National League sucks and your boy Rob Manfred allowed, you know, 50 teams to make the postseason. So the Mets are going to be involved. When Max gets the ball in those big spots, is he good? Is he bad? And if he's bad, Ev, does he make freaking excuses you know because that drives me that? nuts more sometimes no, no. than the bad performance i agree with you we can't fast forward to october and hopefully the mets will be there and right now despite all the struggles this season they are in a playoff spot and they're only you know four games out of the nl east which is crazy but here's what i bring up and i think you'd admit this because i i feel this way going into it the mets are going to play the toronto blue jays over the weekend they're then going to atlanta let's not forget that the mets are going back to the scene of the crime <laughs> to what really derailed their season a year ago. Starting with the Grom on Friday night, Scherzer on Saturday, yeah. Bassett on Sunday. Obviously, they still could have beat the Padres. We all get that. Scherzer could have still gone out and beat the Padres that night. But that series against Atlanta really turned everything around. The Mets go back there next week. Max Scherzer will pitch one of those games. If he can go out and pitch a damn good game in Atlanta, it does not make up for last year. Nothing will till the playoffs. We all know that. But if he could go out in Atlanta, first time the Mets are getting a crack back at that site, played him at City earlier this season, I wouldn't forgive him, but I'd feel really good. No, I think it would. I think it would solidify that Scherzer is not completely finished. That's what it would do. Like, it would sort of stamp it. Like, right now, he's crept back to where you're like, all right, I have somewhat confidence in Max Scherzer. But if he gets bombed in Atlanta, then all of a sudden, all the goodwill over the last couple starts, to me, is gone. Because yes. the road to anything, I agree Evan, with that. and the Mets are, let's. I'm just being real, I, I'm not going to sugarcoat it, are miles away from the Braves, both currently and in the future. They are. But they are the way to get to the World Series. We have to go through Atlanta. So if Max can't get it done against the Braves, particularly down in Atlanta, then all my confidence in him is back to being shot. Oh, no, no. I agree with that. I think that Max Scherzer's next start in Atlanta Mm -hmm. is one of – and here's how I'll phrase it because it's June, and I think we all acknowledge that. It's as important a June start as one could have. Yeah. That's how I'm going to phrase it. Yep. Because, look, at the end of the day – 
Are we going to forget about June come October? Yeah, we forgot about June last year come October because our season ended early. Right. No one was thinking about all the great comebacks, you know, as the Mets are getting beat by San Diego and Atlanta. So he is definitely on the right track. It was necessary, though, today or Wednesday, whenever or Thursday, whenever you're listening or recording this after the game on Thursday. It was necessary because they need length. They got length. They had a short bullpen because no Robertson, no Ottavino. And after a rocky first inning, the guy kicked it in the high gear. No, he did. And he was great. And that is really encouraging. And it's a reminder that as down as we may get on Max, and we have, and as down as we may get on Verlander. Because, look, Verlander has another bad start. Going to be killing him. He's been a mixed bag. He's been some good, some bad. As much as we're going to get down on these guys, we have to remind ourselves. They're Hall of Famers for reasons. We can't necessarily count them out too early. No, they are Hall of Famers, but they are both very old, and that could rear its ugly head. This is what I would say, Ev. If we had done this podcast on, let's just say, Monday, we would have said the biggest look. I will put it this way. The most frustrating part of the Mets is the lineup, right? Not starting the baby Mets. Vientos, Beatty, Alvarez, rinse and repeat every single night. That is a frustrating thing. So I look at it like this, Ev. Either Buck Walter is clueless, or Billy Epler is telling Buck who to play, and he's clueless. Either way, one of them's clueless. Stop rolling out this stiff Vogelback. That is the most frustrating thing. The biggest issue for the Mets is the rotation. Not giving us any length. Senga, Carrasco, Max all did that. If, yeah. if they do that... And the manager and the organization figures out who to play every day and the right people, the Mets could start cooking here. The reason why the lineup is more frustrating than the pitching, even though the pitching is their biggest issue. Issue, yeah. There's no fix to the pitching. Yeah. The fix to the pitching is you got to go out there and be better. I remember on the last Rico we did after the Colorado series, they gave up 21 runs in two games. And I remember saying the same thing. There's no magic fix, okay? These guys need to be better. Kodai Senga needs to be better. Uh He was. Max Scherzer needs to give you seven innings. He did. Cookie needs to look like 22 Cookie. He did. The bullpen needs to be solid. It did. Like, there's no fix other than the boring statement of guys need to be better. I think with the lineup, and here's how I'll answer the Vogelback thing. I don't believe Billy Epler's telling Buck a damn thing. I don't buy that crap. Okay. I don't. Darren Ruff was gone. They gave a four freaking guys for Darren Ruff. He didn't even make the team. He admitted his wrongness with Darren Ruff. I think Buck Showalter, and I'm trying to figure out why, has a hard-on for Mark Vantos. A bad hard-on. Oh, he's in the doghouse. I don't think he likes him. Yeah, because that's the thing, Ev. I don't get it. I don't get it either. My thing is this. If the Mets didn't have a better option and Vogelback was the only option and they were playing him every day, fine. They have better options. This lineup has a potential to be very special, in my opinion. I agree. And they are denying us, the fans, and themselves the maximum potential well, of the lineup. Okay, so the, they have options like Vientos, and they're not playing him. What happened in the last two games against the Phillies, you're going to think I'm nuts for saying this, but I mean it, hurt Mauricio's chances of coming up. Yeah. Because yeah. Mauricio replaces Mark Hanna. That's what he does. Uh-huh. Jeff McNeil plays the outfield. Mauricio plays second base. If Mark Canna is going to get hot, and he certainly has against the Phillies, and start to be the solid player he is, that's all he is. No one's saying he's a star. If he's the solid player he is, it loses the kind of push for Mauricio to be but called we up. we know what Canna is. We don't, he's a good player. We don't know what Mauricio no, is. We don't know what Vientos. Why can't these guys learn on the job? Bro, the Braves have developed all-stars basically at every no, position. No. Okay, so let me so counter that, this. Oh, that I would agree. be my frustrating part of what's going on I, right now. I agree with you. When a guy is bad, 
like Daniel Vogelback, yeah. I'd rather see the unknown. There's no disagreement on Vientos over Vogelback or Mauricio over Vogelback if Mauricio is here. If a guy's good, like Eduardo Escobar is now being productive, right? Yes. He's being productive. Yeah, yeah, against lefties. Ma- yeah. yeah, even yeah. against righties. He's yeah, got yeah. a big hit as a lefty against a righty and by the righty in game one. I think Escobar throughout Inter- his career, his career has yes. been better than Vogelback Hanna. He's the best player of the three. I'm not about play the young guys. I'm about play the best guys. Right now, Vientos is a better option than Vogelback's or in lockstep. Yes. If Mark Canna's going to produce and Eduardo Escobar is going to produce, there's going to come to a point where I'll, I don't mind the veterans playing. You got to produce. I just think the ceiling uh, is higher for a guy like Mauricio, and we just don't know. As is the floor. And as is the floor. And you know what, Ev? When the baby Mets, as they're calling them, when they came up here, they lit a fire and a spark under this team. Now, I'm not saying one more guy puts him over the top, but it has, right? So, and Alvarez struggled early. Look, he looked, you know, like he looked mismatched early. And now look at him. Okay, so, so give it time. If we assume Mauricio's not coming up, very soon. Mm-hmm. I want to bring up a, a very pressing issue. A very pressing and issue. And not everybody follows yes. minor leagues. He is like the best awesome. hitter in the minors he's right been, now. Not, been, not just the Mets. He, he has performed well <laughs> enough to be called up. But looking at the major league roster right I now, know. they don't want to make the move. Yeah. But here's the move they're going to have to make, and I have an answer. And you tell me if you're right with this. They have to activate Omar Narvaez soon. Yes. Okay, there are two options in my mind. One option is, thank you, Tomas Nito, for your time. And they trade him, or DFA him. I think he's got value. I think they could trade him. He's a good defensive catcher. He's good in the locker room. Yeah, he's done nothing offensively. Did have some good swings the other night. But I I still think Nito, you can get something for. Yeah. So one option is simple. Nito's gone. Narvaez replaces him. Alvarez is still the everyday catcher. But Narvaez is a damn good second option. Option number one. You could take that option. I like that option. Option number two. Yes. Vogelback's gone. I like that his option replacement, better. <laughs> his replacement is Omar Narvaez. And the way this works hmm. is you're going to get what you want. And what I mean by that is you were one of the voices, one of the many voices that I kindly disagreed with the other day when Alvarez didn't play. I get why a catcher doesn't play day game after night game. JT Realmuto didn't play a day game after night game. Uh, Guys don't do it. And don't tell me his age. You're okay. still bending you knew, over. You knew I was going to counter with that. One's 21. The other's like 32. Doesn't matter. No, it does matter. It's the catching position. No, no Evan, it does matter. But hold on. I have a solution. Okay. The solution to this is when you become a good enough offensive catcher where you don't play every game, Tyler Stevenson in Cincinnati, though he's having a bad year, he DHs. I agree. If you carry a third catcher... He has now become in the mix as you designated him. Yeah, and that was the thing that was most frustrating with last night was that, okay, you didn't want to DH Vientos, you didn't DH Alvarez, and then you DH Vogelback. I agree. It was the worst of the three options. You had three options. You had three options, Buck, and you decided to go with the worst one. So, Ev, to your point, if you want to do that and you want to DH Alvarez, I don't care how he's in the lineup. He just needs to be there. That's it. No, no, I'm with you on that. So, I like that solution. If you go three catchers, it opens up a lot of fun avenues, in my opinion. Narvaez is a decent hitter. He's fine. He's fine. Yeah. He's a good catcher. He is a major league player. I think all of a sudden you want to catch Narvaez a little bit more. Not more than Alvarez, but a little bit more. Fine. I think Alvarez now has more ways to DH. I've always been nervous about DHing Alvarez because let me walk you through why that would have been an issue the other night. Why Vientos would have been my option over Alvarez DHing. So you're behind in the game. And Tomas Nito's up. What are you doing? Yeah, I don't know. 
you're in a bad spot. Are there. you pinch hitting for him? You are because you want to win, yeah, right? Yeah, you got to get a guy up there. Yeah. Now what? Now Alvarez, your DH has to come in and catch. Right. You've now lost the DH spot. Yep. It's strategically not a good move. Yep. So look at Cincinnati. Tyler Stevenson DHs a lot. They have a third catcher. So I think it opens up the avenue to DHing him a little bit more. And right now, I think that'd be my vote. Yeah. Because I'm not in love with just getting rid of Tomas Nito, and I like the idea of DHing Alvarez. But you can't do it without a third catcher. You know what's funny? And we live in a world now where this isn't the case. It used to be more prevalent. But, like, having a great offensive catcher is almost a detriment sometimes because of situations like that. Like, you obviously want that, but then you get put in these situations. And the solution that you brought up here is to have three catchers. Look, getting Vogel back off the team, to me, and I think I speak for all Met fans except for your producer, Pete Hoffman, who's trying to get him in the freaking All-Star game or whatever. You know, that's a... No, he hates Vogel. Don't I don't worry. know if that's a wacky, zany radio bit, but he's trying, to get, he's trying to send this guy to Seattle. Every, every five minutes, he's tweeting about it. But no, three catchers, Alvarez in the lineup with the ability and flexibility to DH and catch, to me, is where we need to be. And they're going to have to make that decision soon, and I, I'm curious what they're going to do. I'm curious what they're going to do. One other thing about Alvarez, where he bats in the order. That's another thing that doesn't get me nuts. Me neither. It's just... As long as you're in the lineup, like there are certain The argument that, is high in the order, so he gets more at-bats, you know, okay. up in the order. And my counter to that is I like having a competent ninth-place hitter so that if he gets on base, I got Nimmo, Lindor, McNeil coming up with guys on base. Well, my argument to that is play all the young guys. You'll have a better, deeper lineup, and you wouldn't have to worry about well, that. Well, sure. Right? <laughs> right? That's the whole point with this. I, I just— yeah. I don't think there's a huge difference between saying how come Alvarez isn't hitting seventh as compared to ninth. I agree with you. Ideally, and I love what this kid has done, when everybody's healthy, he should not be batting second. I'm sorry. Like, he's not, yeah. he hasn't done enough yet. Like, you've got Nimmo, you've got Lindor, you've got McNeil, you've got Alonzo, even Marte showing a pulse. Like, I don't know. On certain days, you want to hit Alvarez second like Buck did. Okay. But on an every, everyday basis, I'd rather him hit towards the bottom of the order. Now. Nah. He keeps hitting. Things can change. Yeah. As of right now, things are going well. It doesn't bother me when I see him batting ninth. Like, when I see that lineup, I don't get disgusted. A lot of Mets fans do. I think we just got to take a deep breath and remember that he's playing. That's it. He's going to play. And I've always viewed batting ninth as something where I don't want to put an easy out there. When the pitcher used to hit, remember back in the day? Mm Mm-hmm. I wanted my pitcher hitting eighth. Well, Tony Larusa did it all the time with the he Cardinals. Was right. Now I think it was more because McGuire, right? They wanted more guys on. Yeah. I think that was the crux of starting it. Okay, yeah. that's the reason. Now yeah. think about what you just said. Okay. Tony Larusa wanted more guys on base for his best hitter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. What a concept. What, Bold what? strategy, Cotton. Why yeah. does that matter if it's more McGuire? <laughs> right. Or Mike Fair enough. Yeah. No, I hear you on that. He was right. Yeah, he was right. Now we're past that. Yep. But I still think we live in a world where I want a. I don't say a great hitter, because you're right. I still want him more towards the top of the order to get more at-bats. Mm-hmm. But I want a guy who can get on base batting ninth. And Alvarez can rip a double. Yeah, absolutely. And that puts Nimmo in a good spot. So coming up this weekend, they play the Toronto Blue Jays. Here's what's been announced. Justin Verlander against Chris Bassett. That'll be fun. Bassett's had a very good <laughs> year for the Blue Jays. He's had a very, very good year. You no start to think it. if he just couldn't handle New York. Some of the comments he made at no. the end of the year, to me, were so tone deaf. I, I agree, but in fairness to Bassett, he had a really good year last year. Yeah. He was their most well, consistent he was, starting and pitcher. He was, and then, like everyone else, failed at the end of the year. Everyone It was else. awful. Everyone was bad. Other than DeGrom. Other than Jake. Other than Jake. Right. So, Bassett is what he is. Remember, Bassett was replaced with Kodai Senga. Mm-hmm. I am still, maybe I'm just a Senga lover. I still believe in this guy. I think he has shown so many positive signs that even before his brilliance on Tuesday, I'm excited about Kodai. My thing I don't with, regret that move yeah, at all. My thing with Senga that worries me is that 
you feel like a guy in baseball right now where none of these hitters have faced him, you would think he would have the advantage early, and he hasn't. So that worries me a little bit, right? You would think he would take the, the league by storm. He did against the Phillies the other night. Uh, no, he was great the other night. Did against I, the Rays. I agree. Yeah, he's been up and down, and why they don't – that's another mystery why the guy doesn't pitch, you know, every five days or four right. days. But So I agree with you, Ev. I think he will eventually blossom, but that worries me a little bit that he hasn't been more dominant early. Yeah, I, I think you got to kind of look through it. There is an adjustment that he's making, mm-hmm. a pitch clock adjustment – a language adjustment, a baseball adjustment, and I think he's shown enough positive signs where I still look at the Senga Bassett decision and I feel good about it. Not a knock on Bassett. I just I still think Senga's got the higher potential. Uh, McGill against Barrios on Saturday, and then Kikuchi against I hope Senga on Sunday. I know Senga wants to pitch on regular rest. I think now's the time to just do it, especially because it's at home. Like think about it. If you push him back, if you're the Mets, think about where his next start would be in Atlanta against the Braves. He has struggled on the road. Mm -hmm. There's been huge splits home road. Like, why would you want that? Wouldn't you rather his first foray, if you will, foray, foray, whatever it is, on regular rest be in an environment where he's been really good, City Field. Absolutely. He should absolutely pitch Sunday. And and listen, at some point here, they're going to have to take the, uh, you know, they're going to have to pitch this guy on regular rest. Like, when we get down to the end yeah. of the year, you're going to need him out there. So they're babying him for whatever reason, whether it's the reports that his medicals are bad. I don't think that's been proven I don't by think anybody, that's it. But there are stories about that. But there's something, and they haven't told us why. I, think, I, I don't think it's anything conspiratorial. Okay. I think it's... All those adjustments I just mentioned, okay. and there's a lot of it. Yeah, I think they really want to take it easy on the regular rest. Fair enough. So it's gonna. I think it'll happen Sunday. I'm hopeful it'll happen Sunday. Uh, for whatever reason, I can't tell you the answer, but my oldest son Jet's favorite player is Kodai Senga, <laughs> and he's consistent about it. I think it was because Jake left, and it was almost oh ghost fort. Yeah, ball? I thought the ghost. Great. Yeah, the ghost was why I thought that. that'll win me over, <laughs> and he'll be at the game Sunday. So hopefully Kodai is on the mound. But great three days against the Phillies. The Mets are in a playoff spot. They're within striking distance of Atlanta. A big series against the Blue Jays. It's a good time for now to be a Mets fan. Maybe the next time we do a Rico, everyone will be pissed off. I'm going to try to throw in a bonus Rico before this series against the Blue Jays is done. A couple of topics I want to get to. Number one, the Mets Hall of Fame. But also number two, because I've said this to Pete a lot. Pete always likes to bring up, they should have done this during the offseason. They should have done that. There will be an episode within the next week, maybe this weekend. I haven't decided. i got to see how much time I have. To go through all the should have moves and see, would they really be better off? Would they re- Trey Turner, would they really be better off? Yeah. Carlos Correa, would they really be better off? So we'll address it coming up, and we'll read some of your emails. You can email the pod, therecob at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and thank you to Lugie for stepping in. We no, appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for listening to Rico Bronya. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. <laughs>